0: It's Monday, October 25th, 2021, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Today, we are continuing our study on the book of Romans, and specifically, we will be looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. And this passage is the climax passage, not only of Romans chapter 8, but of the first eight chapters of Romans. It's one of the all passages of the Bible because it serves to stimulate our love and our affection for Christ. Like Philippians chapter 2 or Isaiah chapter 40, this is a passage that is one that just brings us into awe at the beauty of the gospel, the goodness of God and the glory of God. And ultimately, in this beautiful expression, it reminds us that we are triumphant conquerors if we belong to Christ because God is for us. So who can be against us? These verses celebrate our security in Christ and the certainty of God's love. Romans chapter 8 begins with, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with, in verse 39, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. Beloved, these sweet, bold, and securing words give us utter security in Christ. And so with that, let's look at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. For I'm sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Verse 31 asks, What then shall we say to these things? Romans 8, chapter 30, Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39 is a summary and a celebration of Romans chapter 1 through 8. So when Paul says, what shall we say to these things? He's not just talking about Romans chapter 8, but he's looking back all the way to Romans chapter 1 and saying, what shall we say to these things? Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul shows us that the gospel has its roots in the Old Testament, all the way back to to Adam and Eve and and Abraham and David. But then in verse 6 through 7, he he wants the believer to know that you belong to Christ, you're loved by God, and you're called to be saints. In Romans chapter 1, verse 8 through 18, he shows how he was called to preach the gospel, the power of God for salvation to all, to everyone who believes. And then in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 19, all the way through Romans 3.20, Paul shows us how humanity is depraved and sinful and underneath the wrath of God and the righteous judgment of God. There is none righteous. But then in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26, God intervenes for humanity with Christ Jesus. In Romans 3.27 through Chapter 8, verse 30, it's the unfolding of this good news of the gospel. Believers are justified before God. Believers are reconciled to God. Believers enjoy peace with God. Believers are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Believers are not condemned before God. Believers are adopted by God. Believers have glorification, hope in God. Believers have help in the Spirit of God. Believers are called by God. And believers have the certainty that all things are working for the good of those who love God. So Paul says, so what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to the good news of the gospel of Christ? And there's three main questions that that Paul asks and answers in this passage. Those three questions are, who can be against us? Who can charge or condemn us? And then third, who can separate us? So let's start with the first question. Who can be against us? Verse 32 shows us the answer. That God is for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? God is for us. When God is for us, we have absolutely nothing to fear. In this fallen world, there will be pain, trouble, and hardship But we must not let suffering deceive us. If we are in Christ, we can be assured that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? God is not not opposed to us, but he is for us. Just as the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 56, verses 9 through 11, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. And this I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Jesus tells us we will have suffering, but to take heart, John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. When God is for us, we have absolutely nothing to fear. Verse 32 makes such a powerful statement to bring home this truth. If God gave his son up for us, will he not be for our good in growing towards him and his glory being seen in us? In other words, if you want assurance that God is for you, look at the cross for ultimate assurance. God gave Jesus up for us, in place of us, instead of us. And this is the ultimate act of love. Paul says it this way to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he says to the church at Galatia in Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. If God has done the hardest thing on our behalf, surely he will give us everything necessary to conform us to the image of his son, and everything necessary to bring us to our true eternal home. God redeems us to conform us to the image of his son, Romans 8:29, which we know, as Paul says in Philippians 1:6, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Oh. God puts the priceless life of his son up for us and he continues the ongoing work of salvation. In other words, if God didn't spare his son, he isn't going to spare giving us what we need to preserve to eternity. Oh, God is with us. God is for us. So who can be against us? But well, that brings us to the next main question from the passage, and that is who can charge Or condemn And the answer is no one can charge us or condemn us of guilty when the author, creator, sustainer, and ultimate judge of our soul has confirmed us not guilty. If we are in Christ, we are justified, no matter how Satan might accuse us, bringing up our sins or bringing up our past. Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary on this passage, says, Believers can face the day of judgment with confidence. For those whom God has chosen as his own will certainly not be accused on the day of judgment. God has declared them to be right in his sight, and thus those who would accuse believers will not successfully establish their case. And sometimes our own hearts will try to condemn us. We'll we'll try to condemn ourselves, or or we'll look at our sin and we'll say, how could a righteous holy God ever accept us? John says in his epistle in 1 John chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, he says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Beloved, God has chosen us. He died for us. He justified us. Oh, but don't miss this truth. He now intercedes for us. Revel in the truth that not only did Christ die for our sins, that we that would have condemned us. Not only is Christ's victory our victory, but he now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Us. oh, When it says, who will condemn? In verse 34, it says, Christ Jesus, is the one who died, more than that, who is raised and who's at the right hand of God. Indeed, he is interceding for us. Hebrews says it this way in chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then Paul reminds us in Romans 8, verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I love what John Stott says about the intercession of Christ. He says, his very presence at the Father's right hand is evidence of his completed work of atonement. And his intercession means that he continues to secure for his people the benefits of his death. He continues to secure for his people the benefits of his death. What peace in the face of charge, charges and condemnation to know that we are the subject of our Lord and Savior's intercessory prayers. Louis Burkhoff was a Dutch theologian in systematic theology in the 20th century. And he says this in his commentary on this passage. He says, It is a consoling thought, that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our own prayer life. That he is presenting to the Father the spiritual needs which are not present to our minds, and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious, and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. Oh, beloved, Jesus is committed to pray for you fervently and without ceasing to the Father. We can therefore have bold confidence and assurance in the face of accusation and sin. But also, we approach the last main question with great boldness. And that question is, who can separate us? Who can separate us? Because God is for us, we can never be separated from the love of Christ. But in the answer to this question, instead of giving a, a simple answer of, well, nothing can separate us, Paul wants to warm the affection of our hearts to prove that not only can nothing separate us, but all of the things that try to separate us, they just make us stronger. And more resilient in our firm foundation that we cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ. Jesus defends us. He loves us. And he enters into relationship with us to prove that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul goes on to present two lists of potential separators. The first list contains hardship in this physical life, while the second deals with more universal and spiritual threats. In list one, we see outward affliction or outward tribulation and inward distress. We may believe that God's love is absent, but we must be reminded that we are never outside the grasp of Christ's grace. And then he brings up persecution, suffering for the gospel, as is a physical reality for our brothers and sisters around the world and as a mental and emotional reality for those of us who stand up against this worldly culture. But even persecution, this cannot separate us from the love of Christ. And then he goes on and says, famine and nakedness. In other words, the absence of basic necessities. I have met many people around the world with more joy and confidence in the Lord who trust him for their daily bread. They do not have bank accounts. They do not have money for tomorrow. They only have the necessities for today. In our culture, in the U.S., we may say they lack basic necessities, but they have the joy of the Lord. Beloved, famine and nakedness cannot separate us from the love of God. Danger, Paul goes on to say, living out our faith in risky context. You know what? Paul knew danger. Actually, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and, and 12, he talks about danger in sea and, and danger at rest. He talks about hunger and sleepless nights and shipwreck. You see, beloved, we are never promised physical comfort because we have the greatest comfort in the love of God, which no danger can separate us from. And then Paul says, are the sword... The sword, death by execution for our faith, or this could even be natural death of the saints. But even our death cannot separate us from the love of God. But it gives us face-to-face reality of God's love. Our death gives us a face-to-face reality of God's love. I love what D.L. Moody used to say. He said, one day you're going to read an obituary and it's going to say that D.L. Moody, passed away and died. But do not believe those words, because on that day, D.L. Moody will be more alive than he's ever been, because he'll be face to face with his Savior. The sword cannot separate us from the love of God. It actually brings us face to face with the reality of God's love. But then Paul quotes from Psalm 44, verse 22, To remind us that suffering is a normal part of a Christian's life in this fallen world. Suffering should not surprise us nor dismay us into believing the love of God has passed. Paul says in verse 36, quoting from Psalm chapter 44, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Oh, no. Suffering cannot Separate us from the love of God. It does not mean that the love of God has passed. Why? Because we know, as Paul says in verse 37, that we are more than conquerors. And how do we know? The cross. The cross is the ongoing assurance of Christ's power to make us conquerors. And we must return to it again and again and again. Paul tells the church at Galatia, Galatia, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave up himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus is the champion. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But in him, we have rock solid assurance of victory against sin, which makes us more than conquerors. Suffering, hardship, the sword, danger, famine, nakedness, persecution, outward tribulation, inward distress, none of it can separate us from the love of God. And then in verse 38, Paul says, I am sure. In other versions, it may say, I am confident. What does this mean? He is convinced and wants us to be completely convinced as well that we cannot be separated from the love of God. And so he goes on to his second list of universal and spiritual threats to drive home the point that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God. Four more pairs of threats that he brings up. He says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, brethren says there's nothing in the realm of human existence or even in the experience of death can separate us from Christ's love. And if it's not good enough to say death nor life, he, he ups the ante and he says, nor angels nor rulers, nothing in the spiritual realm can separate us from Christ's love. Nothing in the physical realm, nothing in life, nothing in death, no angels, no rulers, And then he ups the ante to the third pair when he says, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. In other events, no event in history, either past, present, or future, or current, can separate us from Christ's love, both in the spiritual and in the physical realm. Right here in verse 38, Paul is speaking to us, those that would live after these words were penned, to say there's nothing, no event in history that can separate you from the love of Christ. And then if that wasn't enough, Paul just goes for the juggernaut, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. Nothing above us or below us, nor anything which has been or could be created can separate us from Christ's love. Oh, brothers and sisters, if we are united with Christ, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He never promises us that life will be easy, but he promises to be with us every step of the way with his abiding presence. So four points of application for us. The first, the truths from this passage should lead us to worship. Oh, this passage should leave us in awe and should leave us in worship. Paul goes to great lengths to impress upon us the overwhelming love of Christ. We are more than conquerors and nothing can separate us. Beloved, let us worship God moment by moment for his unfailing love and his unrelenting presence. Let us worship. But the second application is that we should let these truths And this passage brings us out of the depths of despair. Sin, suffering, and death can lead the believer into discouragement. But this passage proves that through the power and the love of God, we can look both in the face with great confidence. Oh, we look sin in the face. We look suffering in the face. We look death in the face with confidence to know that our God is good, that he is for us, that no one can condemn us or charge us, and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, verse 39, that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. we got to worship. we got to let this passage bring us out of despair. And then third, we've got to understand that the gospel unites diverse believers through one family and community of faith. Paul talked about in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17, the beauty of our adoption, our spiritual adoption. And it knits us together as a, a family, a community of faith. But even in this passage, verses 31 through 39, Paul brings that back And he does it as he uses plural pronouns. If you look again at the language that Paul uses, it's all plural. There are 12 pronouns in this passage, and they are all us or we. Paul could have said, what then shall I say to these things? If God is for me, who can be against me? But that's not what he says. Even in the first two verses, we see five of the 12 plural pronouns. He's starting this passage out by saying, this is for us. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This passage can be applied for sure for our personal lives. But ultimately, the passage is not individualistic. It's corporate. It's familial. We have been adopted into one family from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be united in the gospel. The gospel is what unifies us, not our politics, not our race, not our culture, not our background, not our family heritage, not our our nation. No, the gospel is what makes us true brothers and sisters, and that is stronger than biology. So we must worship. We must let this passage bring us out of despair. We must see that the gospel unites believers in one family. And then fourth, we must let this passage embolden our mission. You see, assurance of salvation should never lead to apathy, but to advancement of the gospel. Oh, this passage gives us courage and boldness to go and share of the excellencies of Christ Jesus and our Father. We can testify boldly to the claims of Christ in a skeptical world, knowing that God is for us. We can go to unreached people groups, preach the gospel, and even face opposition or seeming failure, and yet know that we are conquerors, more than conquerors to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we can know that Jesus is interceding on our behalf as we go to unreached people groups. We can live missional lives, knowing that all things are working together for our good and God's glory. And we can suffer now because we know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So beloved, let us be filled with great hope because our God is for us. Well, thanks for joining us for the Defender podcast. We're praying for the country of Hungary, for children and families as they wait in the process of adoption, for our team as they work uh, tirelessly, both our team on the ground as well as our team here in the United States as they work tirelessly in this country and for these children, for the government and the country in general, um, for the gospel to go forth and for the government to to make wise pronouncements on the behalf of children. We just ask that the gospel would go forth in Hungary. So let's pray. Father God, we do pray right now for families in the process of, a, of an adoption from Hungary. We pray for the families who have dossiers registered at the ministry, that their process would be expedited and these children would be able to come home to these families as soon as possible. We pray for the discrimination against the Roma child and population as a whole. We pray that the Lord would protect these children from discrimination and that ultimately he would place them in a home that would love them for who they are in Christ. We pray for the families who are in country bonding right now with their children. We ask that you would go before them and go before this process, and we pray that these children would come into their families and attach in an awesome way. We pray specifically for families that are waiting, and especially for those who are waiting for court, and those who have been waiting for for many months and are, are weary of the waiting. Would you be with them and hold up their arms and wrap your love around them? We pray for uh, more referrals. We we continue to hear, Lord, that there are children that need families in Hungary, and we have families that are coming forward, and we pray that those families and children would be matched. We thank you for our team here on the ground, for, for Jana and Jackie and Brianna and Sarah Ann and Timmy Ann. We just ask that you would give them grace and give them wisdom as they continue to serve the children of Hungary and continue to serve this nation. We pray for Adam in Hungary, and we pray for him as he navigates the adoption process. We pray for him to continue to build relationships with the government and the officials, and for him to gain clarity um, as he works with the government. We also pray for Cornell, who does so many of the logistics for the families and for Adam on the ground. We pray for the country as a whole. Many Hungarians call themselves Christians, but most families have described it as a spiritually dark country. Orthodox religious traditions are nothing but that, a tradition of culture, not a faith in you, Lord. We pray that you would unite believers to make the gospel known to those who are, who, are, who, are, who are just trapped in their strong religious tradition. And Father, we pray that our families that are sent to adopt will continue to share the gospel when they travel and for opportunities for our staff to be light in the darkness to those we come in contact with. We pray for the Prime Minister's office and for the Department of Adoption Affairs and for the Women's Policy Central Authority that they will continue to be in favor of intercountry adoption and they will see the urgency in preparing the paperwork for these children. We pray specifically for Judith Sebastian, our contact at the U.S. Embassy. We pray that you would just give her great hope and great love and that you'd surround her and hold her up. We pray for Erica, the head of the ministry, as she works Uh, tirelessly to match children with families. We pray for the pediatrician we work with in Hungary, Dr. Boris, as she takes care of the children and, and helps assess their needs. We pray for all the social workers that work and serve the children of Hungary, that you would give them grace, that you would give them vision, and that you would give them just special ways to reach out to these children. Lord, we praise you as well for families who are called to adopt from Hungary, for the 11 children who've come home already in 2021, and for Adam and our team on the ground and for all they do. God, we thank you. We thank you for the way that you work. We thank you for the way that you move. And we pray that the gospel would go forth in hungry and that many people would come to know you as their Savior and Lord. It's in your great name that we pray, the name of Jesus.